0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author,
1: and I'm also happy to say that he's my dad. So, dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm, I'm always touched, actually, even though I have heard it a lot, by that little <laughs> thing you say there. And I'm really glad you're my son. Oh, thanks so much, Dad. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I
0: know it's always offered very earnestly.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about relationships today. And I just felt moved somehow to include that Mm. in our relationship.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that this whole platform that we've built around the podcast has really given us kind of new opportunities to Mm -hmm. investigate what our relationship looks like. Maybe particularly as, you know, you've got a common dynamic where, You've got the adults, you've got the parents, and then you have the kids. And as Mm -hmm. the kids start to become adults themselves, like Mm -hmm. what happens to that relationship? Uh, We've definitely done episodes of that in the past, and I'm sure that we'll do more in the future. But today we're focused on building strong relationships in general, but maybe particularly focusing on our more romantic ones. A big part of Rick's practice was working with couples and families for many years, so I want to lean on those 35-ish years of experience here to start unpacking a pretty big question. What separates relationships that are happy and enjoyable, loving, stable, reliable, from those that aren't? Before we get into the episode, a few quick reminders. First, you can follow us on social media. I've linked all of our profiles in the description of today's episode. Second, if you'd rather be watching this episode right now rather than listening to it, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. I've included a link to that as well. And then finally, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, maybe even less than that, if you live in the Bay Area like us, you could support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return, like transcripts, expanded show notes, and ad-free versions of the episodes. So getting into our content today, Dad, I'd like to start with you and your long history working with couples who, generally speaking, walked into your office because they were struggling with some issue or another. What were some of the big issues that brought people into the office
1: most frequently? It's poignant, really. So you have two people who very often walk down the aisle together Mm -hmm. uh, or have been in some kind of serious, significant relationship, even without, let's say, without being married necessarily for some time. So it's poignant. These two people who are drawn to be with each other who felt cherished by the other person and felt that they wanted to hitch their wagon, as it were, to that other person. And yet now, some years later, they're, they're in trouble. And they're looking mm-hmm. at each other as if they're peering across a big body of water from two separate islands, wondering you know, if they'll ever join up again. It's touching, actually, it's high stakes. Sometimes people come in and they just want a little tune up. Maybe there the stakes aren't so high, but very (laughs) often, uh, at some level, this is make or break. So here they are, they're in my office. And I was just thinking about your question. It's sort of like three levels to it. You know, level one is Mm -hmm. there's some kind of issue or content or substance. They disagree about money. They're disagreeing about sharing the load of housework or especially about child rearing. Are we going to be on the same page in terms of taking care of the kids? Are we sharing the load fairly? Sometimes there are issues around sexuality, intimacy. There's a discrepancy or difference of interest. One person wants more, the other person wants less. So there's some kind of issue. Okay. Underneath that second level, and sometimes the second level is where the issue is really prominent in the first place, is around process, how mm. they argue with each other, the hostility, the snippiness, the interrupting, the criticizing, the complaining. And mm. then underneath that, even more deeply further, it's typically a feeling of, in you know, at least one person, if not both people, a feeling really let down. Feeling not Mm. cared enough about for the other person to stretch. Who am I to you anymore? I don't feel like I matter to you anymore. And so, what's the point of all this?
0: When we were prepping to do this episode and we were kind of doing a little back and forth about it, you mentioned a kind of common structure that walks Mm. into your office inside of relationships. And I just found it like totally insightful and a fantastic summary of so much content. So,
1: would you mind sharing it here? Oh, sure. So once in a while, the two people come in and their complaints and their commitments are symmetrical. They're really kind of equal. But usually, the structure that walks in the door is plaintiff, defendant. Mm,
0: One person
1: mm -hmm. has just gotten fed up and fed up to the point of, we're going to go see a couple's counselor. So, classic structure is A and a B, plaintiff and defendant. And the A person just feels angry, let down, misunderstood. They, you know, are discontent. They have complaints, as it were. For me, a complaint is a neutral and very legitimate word. They have grievances. They have their own bill of particulars. I I still remember this couple that walked in the door. They actually were in quite good shape. They were looking for a tune-up. So they walk in the door. It was a heterosexual couple, been married for a number of years, and they were both very charming. And my first question, typically, is something like, so, What would you like to have be better? What brings you here? And so the the wife said, oh, I have a little list. And she reached into her bag and she pulled out a list. I think it had 19 items on it. And she started reading her list. (laughs) And I just watched him sink lower and lower in his seat. (laughs) And I could register that every single item was legitimate. There was a validity to it. You could sort of tell that he knew what she was talking about. It ranked true. It made sense. You know, I could really understand. She was very credible, you know, how she put it. And so at the end of her 19 points, uh, I turned to him trying to <laughs> kind of reset things. And I said, so what's on your list? <laughs> trying to make a little joke here. And he said, only one item, that her list go away. <laughs> and so we both chuckled there mm. and then went to work on her list. So the outcome very much, I think, in a situation like this, that's very common, essentially depends on three key things. First is how the defendant responds to the plaintiff, how B Mm -hmm. responds to A in terms of their list, and, and hopefully A has a well-articulated list, or at least some clarity about what it is that's bothering them. And sometimes part of the work early on is to just sort of get it out on the table and help people talk about not so much the proxies, those superficial issues, like in my famous, my well-known example, how to load the dishwasher, uh, but what's really underneath that around issues of dominance or intimacy and teamwork. Okay, so now that the list is on the table, First question is, will the defendant, will be respond to it? Will they Mm -hmm. hear it? Will they get past some of the top spin, over-the-top tone, the harshness, the complaint, the anger? Will they get past their own defensiveness and take maximum reasonable responsibility for sustaining unilateral virtue that you and I wrote about in the book Resilient and really responding to the max they reasonably can to their partner? That's a key question. Second question then is, if... B does that and does that, you know, imperfectly, but reasonably well, with some sincerity, will A actually receive it? Or even if A receives it, is it too late? Too many painful things have happened. The betrayals maybe have been too deep. Nope. A says to B, I appreciate your efforts now, but it's too little, too late. Sometimes that happens. And sometimes A discovers that Truth through the process. Sometimes, frankly, A comes in the door wanting to go through the exercise to be able to say to themselves and their partner and others, hey, we tried, but really deep down inside, they're coming into couples counseling in order to end the relationship. Okay. So now that's the second thing. B's making efforts. Does they recognize them? Does they receive them? Is they afraid uh, that if they really let it end, that, that will mean giving up their grievances about the past? and giving their partner a, a pass. Is they afraid that if they open their heart to these efforts, that they'll be disappointed and let down again? So it's, it's, this is a very delicate moment there. And then third, what very often happens that's interesting is after we kind of move through the plaintiff-defendant structure, it starts to turn out that, oh, the defendant has a list as well. B has their (laughs) own (laughs) feelings that may have been shelved for a while about, you know, what's been missing for them in the relationship Mm -hmm. or what Mm -hmm. they don't like about how A has been talking with them or doing certain things. And they have their own little list as well. And so there at that point, it's important as a therapist to stay out of tit for tat and to Mm. stay out of shifting back and forth quickly from one person's list to another person's, it's actually Mm -hmm. better to kind of focus on one person's list for a while and then shift over to the other person's list. And sometimes it happens that when the tables finally do get turned and the A person is hearing their partner's issues with them, they're pretty good about it, especially if the foundation has been laid in the earlier stages here. Other times though, you know, A is just prickly and defensive and unwilling to cop to their own material to clean up their Mm. own side of the street. And then sometimes what starts to happen is B starts taking a fresh look at the relationship and wondering, Mm. "Mm. hmm, hmm, am I really signed up for this for the next 20 years?
0: It's a great structure. When I saw it, there were just like so many light bulb moments around watching friends of mine inside of their relationships or just like, seeing the broader structure inside of family systems or whatever else. And I just think it's a fantastic summary of a very large and complex territory. So to just kind of say it again sort of succinctly here, because I know speaking personally, lots of like A's and B's can start to like fuzz together in my head for a second. Right. So okay, so we got plaintiff <laughs> and defendant. That's the language I'll use to kind of keep it as as simple as possible. Initial moment, plaintiff has a problem with defendant, so they go into the office together. So then we've got three questions. How much effort is the defendant willing to put into responding to the plaintiff's complaint? Like, are they actually willing to give a good effort? Then second part, how much is the plaintiff receptive to the defendant's efforts? Like, how open are they to receiving the good-natured or, you know, as as good as reasonably possible effort that the defendant is putting in to solving the underlying problem. And then really critically, this sort of like Aikido moment at the end of there that you threw in, which I think is, again, I really want to return to this one and spend some time with it. How much is the plaintiff willing to respond to and receive the natural complaints or grievances, the list of the defendant that emerges throughout the process. And I think that I I really want to spend a moment there because I'm not a 35 years couples counselor. I'm not even a therapist. So please give me your input on this. (laughs) But my kind of very amateur opinion here is that a lot of the time, the problematic behavior inside of the relationship that the defendant is displaying is actually founded upon their own gripes and their own grievances Mm. and their own complaints. And if their own needs were being met the problematic behavior wouldn't appear as much. So you've got this kind of wheel of a cycle, right? Yeah. Of like grievances yeah. piled on top of grievances from both sides of the spectrum. And it can become kind of challenging, I would imagine, to untangle it over time.
1: I think that's deeply insightful. And mm. I think it's important to avoid blaming the victim, quote unquote. Yeah. In other okay. words, there, there. I think there are many situations in which the aggrieved person comes in and their grievances are completely legitimate Absolutely. and yeah. unconditionally B should cut it out. <laughs> B should not do that stuff. B should also, on the other hand, B should step up and, you know, carry their end of the log in a fair kind of way. Completely true. And this is the real Aikido here. It's often in A's best interest to go to the maximum reasonable extent of helping B to give them, A, what they want from B. And this is a very interesting moment because it moves people into agency. It also takes a kind of maturity in the psychology of a person to be able to recognize and to kind of sort apart in one pile. There are my very understandable emotional reactions to my partner, the so-called love of my life, blowing it with me again and again. Okay, I got that. And that said, if I'm to get what I want in this relationship pragmatically, it behooves me in whatever ways that I judge to be legitimate and reasonable, not going over the top here, but in practical, legitimate ways that sometimes I am coached into by my therapist. I can... Help my partner, I can fill their cup more. I can do certain things that are going to remove points of friction from their standpoint, that just make it easier for them to be responsive, uh, et cetera. And that's a real interesting shift arena there. Mm. But for me, it's very important for people to claim the agency they have to, to the maximum reasonable extent, influence in appropriate ways other people, Mm -hmm. including in intimate family relationships, to give them what they really need.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's a great kind of framework for the next thing that I want to talk about, which is what differentiated the Mm -hmm. couples that tended to improve from the couples that tended to not. And I mean, we can frame improvement in a lot of different ways, right? Sometimes improvement is getting out of a problematic relationship. And I think that it's really important to sort of hold that, that success isn't just defined by continuing inside of the relationship that you're Mm -hmm. in right now if that relationship is not working. So with that caveat given... Uh, You've named a few things already. You talked about claiming agency, influencing what we can influence, being open to taking responsibility for your own behavior.
1: What were some other things that tended to really influence outcomes? Some of them are external. And when I say them, you go, oh yeah, thank you, Captain Obvious. So children, (laughs) uh, people are going to work harder typically. If children are involved, social, political, economic factors of, mm. for example, historically, many women remained stuck in bad marriages because of legal reasons and then, yeah. and mm-hmm. or financial ones. And so mm-hmm. as the independence and the economic independence of both parties in the relationship increase, then they tend to have more freedom to sometimes break up from the relationship, but that's not always a bad thing. Okay, so those are external factors of different kinds and so forth. Then internally, I think it's a mystery for us sometimes. I mean, I've had couples come in and I think to myself, these are people with a lot of emotional intelligence under their belt. They have a lot of skills. they are good reasons for them to stay together. And quicker than I can even imagine Three sessions in, one of them is just done. They're Mm. just done. They're calling the divorce lawyers and they're going to try to work it out, but they're done. What happened? On the other hand, I've seen situations where the people come in and the issues are very intense. They don't Mm. seem like they have that many skills really for working stuff out. And somehow, lo and behold, there's some kind of magic. There's some kind of turning point that happens where one person sees the light and makes a fairly dramatic shift, which then Mm. tends to helps the other person, catalyzes the other person in making a similar shift as well. So there's there's kind of a mystery here. One of the things that I think is a very powerful factor is real vulnerable truth-telling. That is very important. So we're looking for ways in couples counseling and people themselves can look for ways to foster that kind of vulnerable honesty along the lines of answering questions, you know, speaking to things like, what I really like about you is this, A, B, and C, and I, I'd love to have more of that in our mm. time with each other. Like, man, it's <laughs> it's hard to swerve away from that. Like, what are you going to argue with about that? Uh, What I like about you in a very vulnerable way. Or it helps me a lot when you are such and such. It fills my heart with happiness. It helps me deal with what I have to deal with. It helps me a lot when you talk with me in certain ways, or you do certain things for me, or you sustain attention to me in certain ways. You know, some kind of honest communication. Or when you say that, I just feel horrible inside. I mean, there's the, the structure of nonviolent communication we can draw upon. Things mm. like, you know, when X happens, I feel Y because I need Z, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one major factor, open, vulnerable communication. I think another major factor that helps is to have well-operationalized complaints. <laughs> what I mean by that, mm. or to put mm-hmm. it a little differently, well-operational, well-defined results that you'd really like. Like, what does it really mean for your partner to be nice to you? What does it mean for your partner to do their share around the home? What does it mean for your partner to listen more? What does it actually mean? What does it mean to be romantic? How often? In what ways? What are you talking about here? Are we talking about holding hands or something else? What does it actually mean? So that's well stated. Mm -hmm. I think that actually can make a big difference. And maybe the last one I'll just say here. That I find can really be helpful is actual skillfulness interpersonally. Often people just don't know what to say. They don't know how to say it. They, they don't know. Mm. You know, when they ask for something and their partner does something different, they don't know what to do next. Or if they're really saying, you know, I'd want to feel listened to, really listened to and their partner looks at them for 20 sec- for 10 seconds in a row and then their eyes start to wander away and they start fiddling with their phone what do you do then in a way that's skillful rather than just creates another argument and that's where mm-hmm. interpersonal skills that are available out there in the world, we wrote about some of these in Resilient. My mm-hmm. next book actually is about making good relationships because good yeah. relationships are, are made, not found, especially mm-hmm. over the long haul. So knowing what to say when and getting more skillful interpersonally can really make a big difference too.
0: Yeah, and I want to just use that here as a kind of jumping off point into the rest of our conversation where we're going to be talking a little bit more about general skills, values, ways to hold your relationships with other people that tend to increase the likelihood of them working out well. Again, here kind of mostly focusing more on our romantic relationships, but there's Mm -hmm. probably some information here that's just kind of generally useful for people. And I wanna just bring something up that I've been really interested in and kind of get your take on, and I've sort of noticed over and over again. Something I have been really shocked to see, like again and again, inside of the relationships of other people that I've sort of seen, watched from up far, seen these patterns emerge, is how often people get into a relationship for reasons other than I really like this person. Mm. And what I mean by that is maybe somebody's you know, you're really attracted to them, but hmm, there's a part of you that doesn't really like a lot of their behavior that much. Mm. Maybe you guys are very passionate together. Maybe you have great sex. Mm. Uh, maybe you think the other person is really popular, or has a lot of social value, and that mm. makes you kind of feel really good about yourself. Uh, maybe they have a good job, make a lot of money. Again, and these are all like okay reasons to get into a relationship, but you just don't like them. And I think that you can love somebody and not really like them that much. Mm. And for me, part of the question, one way to kind of dig into like what I mean by this actually, is this idea of, is the person kind of a a high draft pick to use sports terminology Uh because I watch a lot of sports, uh, a high draft pick for you in terms of who you'd spend time with if you weren't really doing anything. You know, you're not having sex, you're not dealing with the kids, you're just hanging out. You know, there's no real physical contact there. You're reading a book, you're making dinner together, you're just sitting in the same space for 90 minutes. Is that a person that you would really choose to do that activity with? And again, I've just been consistently shocked by how frequently it appears that the relationships that I see out in the world, they might love each other, but they don't really like each other that much. So what do you think about this, Dad?
1: It's haunting and scary Mm -hmm. to really... Look at that, and so I'm just reminded. It's an odd yeah. association here. These various uh, Scandinavian uh, novels of relationships, or movies, or Chekhov plays, or you know, where basically you have people who really drifted apart, and it's scary for them to be alone together in a room. I mean, the silence has become kind of deafening. So I think there are a couple of practical takeaways from this. The first is around selection. Yeah, for sure if you're gonna be in a long-term relationship with someone, is this someone that, let's say, you would trust to be in charge of things if you develop a medical condition or emergency? Is this someone that you feel will be reasonably skillful, not a jerk, with your relatives? Is this someone that you enjoy talking with about anything. (laughs) The sports teams, your friends, politics, movies, TV shows, intellectual stuff, spiritual stuff, cooking together. Do you enjoy talking with them? Is it enjoyable? So I think, do they have moral character? Do you trust them? Is their word good with you? Are they committed to good things, including your welfare? So I think that's part of it. Then a second part of it though, is to keep paying attention to the ways in which liking is constructed. So I'm gonna tell you Mm -hmm. something that I've written about, but it's buried somewhere in my writing and it involves your mother. And uh, I've never told you directly. (laughs) And some time ago, I started doing a little practice and as you know, your mom is immensely likable. Oh, yeah. Really, she is. She just everybody likes Jan, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like She's immensely likable. So. Very,
0: very high approval rate, I agree. Yeah,
1: exactly right. That said, <laughs> you know, when you live with someone, I'm pushing 40 years of marriage now, when you live yeah. with someone a long time, you, you, tend to, you tend to habituate to them, you get used to them and so forth. And as you've said, and you'll say again, I'm sure we get sensitized to what's negative, but we habituate to what's positive. Very yeah. interesting asymmetry in any case, with your mom, I deliberately started looking for things to like about her. I noticed I was mm. getting kind of jaded. I was starting to phone it in a little bit and I thought no so I was I would deliberately look for what's likable, things that are likable. I didn't have to look hard. I just had to look at all, right And so I think that's part of it too that we can we can help our partner, especially in a long-term relationship be more likable, period, in little ways. We can draw out of them. We can ask them questions. We can kind of help them be in situations in which they can really shine. We can express our appreciation to them, which naturally helps people brighten up and become more likable. You know, we can draw the kind of sweetness out of them. On the one hand, and second, we can directly observe and be mindful of things that are, a likable in our partner, and help ourselves feel re-knitted you know, in the fabric of the relationship where we're kind of making new threads when we find what's likable in our partner over time that can help mm. to mend tears in the fabric of relationship and keep knitting it together.
0: To kind of take this idea and run with it a little bit, speaking of myself, I've had so many moments where I kind of caught my brain in a grievance cycle. Yep. and realized that my highest priority was no longer the success of the relationship or the idea that my partner was a good, cool person, you know, that I liked a lot. I was most committed to the idea that my partner was bad or problematic. Mm-hmm. Like, that was where my my investment was. And something had happened where I got on the side of the grievance. Yeah, You know, I I became identified with
1: Mm
0: -hmm. it. I was, you know, holding hands with it as we were walking down the street together. And a lot of the time, what I found is exactly as you're saying, I could kind of deliberately shift my perspective if I wanted to badly enough. Mm -hmm. And I could really start to ally with the idea that, no, my partner's really cool. Let's look at all the different ways that she's a really wonderful person and she's really nice to me and she's, you know, so on and so on and so on. As opposed to being allied to this really narrow grievance. And like you're saying, I think it's a deliberate process. It's something that you can actually evoke if you want to do it. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you may or may not want to do that inside of a lengthy relationship with another person where maybe, you know, you've done that 20, 30 times in the past and you're just fed up with still doing it that way. And I understand that. But a lot of the time we can really deliberately get on the side of liking our partner, I think.
1: Yeah. That's beautifully said, Forrest. Mm. I think in a way, the sweet spot, right? Your kind of best out, your best odd strategy is to talk about the big things and let go of the little things. Mm. Step out of the mood of complaint about the ticky tacky stuff, the little things, let it go. On the other hand, the really big things, don't let them fester. I mean, there's this classic, Dilemma or tension between harmony and truth in relationships, mm. and sometimes mm-hmm. it's appropriate to choose harmony over truth. We we just don't say it, or it's not so much that we lie, but we just leave out a lot of stuff. On the other hand, in important long-term relationships, uh, people who choose harmony over truth again and again and again often end up with neither, mm. and it's scary to talk about big things, but it's also important. And meanwhile, take care of your own side of the street. Mm. Practice unilateral virtue, really, really be the best you can be in, in ways that make you feel good, not becoming a doormat or muzzling yourself, but just really taking care of your side of the street for all kinds of good reasons, including the ways in which it tends to be your best odd strategy for fostering good treatment of you from the other person.
0: This might just be an entirely separate episode that we record at some point, but you're making me think about it. So I want to ask you about it in the moment. I've seen really often, again, with uh, friends, people I was close with, one member of a partnership is kind of like turning the big communication idea over in their head. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about it. They're chewing on Mm -hmm. it. They've got concerns about expressing it, but like it's starting to fulment down there one way or another. What do you think tends to support people in like getting up the gumption or like finding the space inside of themselves to make that very big, open, vulnerable communication? It's huge. Um, That's hard. Like we make it sound just like, oh, just do it. But like, no, it's oh, really no, it's hard, huge. it's scary. It's really yeah. huge because
1: once you said it, I mean, who knows what they'll say. They might they might say, honestly, I, I just don't care. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm not going to give that to you. And you're like, whoa.
0: What do we do now? I'm not that invested in the relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything, the whole stack of
1: cards just comes down. Or they might shame you for Mm. wanting that. Yeah. Like maybe your parents or teachers shamed you for wanting that kind of thing when you were young. It's really huge. Sometimes what happens is people just burst out. (laughs) They can't hold it any longer. You know, maybe a glass of wine was involved, but there it is. Okay, that's one way. Another way is to kind of clarify in your own mind, what exactly are you talking about? And it, it really, if it's a big deal, it does help to be clear about it. And when you're ready to talk about it, to go all in with talking about it without a lot of collateral damage around the edges, without a lot of top span or over-the-top language or harsh tone, that gets in the way, without a lot of inflammatory stuff. It's inflammatory enough without adding a lot of tone to it. That, so it helps to be prepared for it. Uh, it also helps to kind of really be clear what the ask is. What are, you, what are you asking for and why is it important? And even to think through a little bit, what are you going to do if they don't give it to you? Or they say they're going to do it, but then they don't really do it. And is there anything you could do to increase the odds that they're actually gonna come through for you? Mm. That that part. Second, I think it's helpful to have a general almost value in the relationship of repair. And then this is a big topic for you and for me as well. Like relationships need repair. It's not a relationship ender to put a big complaint on the table. It just means we need to repair. We have to do maintenance. Okay. It doesn't mean that we need to walk away from the apartment or sell the home because the faucet's running. We just need to fix it. Okay. The other thing that's really important to have, I think, on the table is the notion of delivering the goods to each other. Mm. That relationships, especially in adulthood, involve reciprocal flows of contribution they could be of different kind of flows. Maybe one person makes more of the money in the relationship. The other person does more of the care of the home and children. And these balance, these uh, arrangements are equitable and honorable and gratifying to both people. Okay, fine. But there's a mutuality of contribution. It's a back and forth. And when that back and forth gets tilted, when one person is truly more of the maker and the other person is truly more of the taker, that creates problems over time. And so it's important to be able to talk about the ways in which we need to deliver the goods to each other, the goods of attention, mm. Mm. just giving attention. We need to give to each other. We need to give good behavior. We need to clean up our own messes. We need to respond to the desires of the other person. We need to you know, deliver. And I think being able to actually talk about that in a straightforward way is important as well.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with everything that you said. And just what I was thinking about while you were talking is using I statements, sort of speaking personally Mm -hmm. here. For me, whenever I've had one of those big, vulnerable communications bubbling up inside of my system, it has been based on parts of myself that were very vulnerable parts. Yeah. Things about myself that maybe I didn't want to accept. I didn't want to accept that I had a certain kind of need Mm. in a relationship that was a very Mm. vulnerable need with a partner. Or maybe I didn't want to accept that a certain dynamic had become profoundly problematic for me inside of a relationship. Or it was like a change and transformation thing. Like I had become a different person than I was at the start of the relationship. And that change, that transformation was starting to exert pressure on the container of the relationship as a whole. And so this reconciliation process needed to happen, right? Where one of these things, you know, something's got to give. And so this is just kind of a long way of saying that I I think that in order to deliver these communications, sometimes we need to come to an understanding inside of ourselves before we're able to deliver that understanding to somebody else. And sometimes it's hard to find the exact right words to say because you don't know what the exact right words are because you don't actually know how you feel about it yet. Yeah. And that's really okay. And then it's about, like, I think that you need to sort of, you can discover your truth in relationship with other people, but a lot of the time doing it that way is a kind of messy process mm-hmm. and fewer eggs get broken if yeah. you get a strong sense of it inside yourself first and you come to terms with it inside yourself first. And generally when I've been able to do that... I've finally been able to tip over into the big vulnerable communication with my partner, but I needed to accept that vulnerable part of myself first.
1: I think in that vulnerability, the truth in it often for many people is they don't feel very fed by their partner Mm. Mm -hmm. in at least one important area. They just don't feel fed. And so you have two wounds here. You have the lack of the attention, the conversation, the physical touch, the functional help around the home, the general communication respect, whatever it might be, the thing is missing. Mm. Underneath it is the deeper wound that functionally, operationally, you don't matter enough, so far at least, to that other person for them to make an effort to deliver that to you, particularly when they know, they've heard what you're wanting, but it hasn't landed in them. It hasn't been a priority for them. It hasn't been important enough. You haven't been important enough for them to give Mm. that to you. And that feeling deep down really is consequential. It's big. It's underneath it all. So I think it's important for people to be willing to speak about that as appropriate. And it's also really important, I think, for those of us who are in relationships and want to stay in relationships to really have kind of a gut check inside ourselves about what are we actually delivering to our partner that's appropriate, Mm. not overgiving, not what's called pathological altruism, not over the top, but are we really delivering it, particularly... Um, when we know really in our hearts what they'd like more of from us. Yeah, I think that's so much of what we're really kind of orbiting
0: around here in in this conversation as a whole. We're really talking about like openness to change, to kind of summarize it in a simple phrase, right? And that's what you have to be inside of a relationship. You have to be open to change. Well said. Yeah, thank you. Um, Because we enter a relationship with a person but we stay in relationship with a process, right? Nobody is static. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I liked that one when I came up with it the other day. I
1: felt good about (laughs) it. You got the alliteration thing going there too. (laughs) Very good. I know, right? I just like,
0: oh, so writerly. Yeah. Person, process. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And and I think, but I think it's so true. You know, you're not in relationship with a person. You're in relationship with a process. Mm. And, We start a relationship with a person, the person that we see when we're first like, huh, yeah, that seems like it would be a good idea. Sure, that's an individual. But from there on out, that individual does not stay static. And what often happens inside of our relationships is we attach to the version of the person that existed when the relationship began. And then so when changes happen, and changes are natural and normal and good, those changes, those good changes often become very fundamentally threatening. Because if the person is changing in all of these ways, wow, it's disrupting the container of the relationship. And we've talked about this over and over again on the podcast, the ways in which individual change affects all of the systems that we're a part of. Mm. But everyone's going to change. That That's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. And part of kind of laying the foundation, I think, for like a truly healthy long-term relationship with somebody else is one, accepting the truth of the other person's change mm. and two, allowing for it. You know, like part of accepting a whole person is accepting their change. And so like part of the game here is kind of like trying to look inside of a person to their their core kernel, if you will. and sort of being like, huh, yeah, I'm on the same page with this core and I'm open to the trajectory of it. And I think that's a really wonderful dynamic. Of course, along the way, sometimes people change in ways that are really problematic and that we shouldn't be accepting of inside of our relationships. Yes, that's all totally fair. But, you know, I think that in order to survive for 40 years or whatever it is, the way that uh, you and mom have, you really have to be okay with a certain number of pretty fundamental things
1: changing. Totally right. One of the most striking findings in developmental psychology Mm. over the lifespan is how divergent people become from each other. Mm. What I mean is that in a classroom of four-year-olds, there's pretty minor amount of psychological heterogeneity among the kids. They have different temperaments, Mm. but they're, they're pretty much like each other. They haven't had time yet to differentiate and become really, really different. But as people get older and older and you start looking at groups of people in their 30s and then 50s and then 80s, they're more and more unlike each other psychologically. We develop, we change. So if we're gonna grow alongside someone for 10 years or 40 years or more, who knows? My parents celebrated a 50-year wedding anniversary and beyond, quite striking. If they're gonna actually do that, then they need to find ways to allow the other person and to allow themselves to be open to change, much as you're saying there. And I think yeah, one of the totally. things, maybe we're circling back to where we started, that really fosters that is the ability to stay in touch with the innermost being of the other person mm. and to speak. From your own innermost being and make it available to the other person, knowing that if you do come from your heart and are kind of simple and dropped down into what's really true for you. It's not airy-fairy, it's not metaphysical. No purple crystals are involved, although I'm looking for some more amethyst crystals myself. But anyway. uh,
0: (laughs) Elizabeth would be
1: very proud of you, yeah. Okay,
0: okay, okay, you're wrong by
1: your partner. Uh, You know, that you're just real in a real vulnerable, bare bones kind of way. And if the other person just can't tolerate that, that's the giveaway. Right there, that's a big deal. Mm. Um, I feel like there are two or three major felony offenses in relationships. I mean there's first, there's certain things that are just unforgivable. You're done with that person. no more, you're done, including sometimes forms of abuse. Second, a big one is people who are just not willing to repair. They're not interested in repair. they're not going to repair. They might say things, but they don't keep their agreements. In a repair process, you can't count on them to repair with you. That is, I think, another major red flag, maybe the death knell of a particular relationship. Mm. And then the third major, major flag is to feel like you can't really be your true self with another person. They don't want your real self, they don't want your innermost being, and they're not prepared to make their own innermost being available to you, Mm. too. Right there. What are you doing? That person, you know, that's another yeah. major, major red flag.
0: Yeah. No, I think those are three right on red flags that certainly everyone should be looking out for. Yeah.
1: Be the person yourself. You can't guarantee mm. the results from mm. what the other person does, but be the person yourself who doesn't do anything unforgivable, period. Second, be someone yourself who really is committed to repair. And last, be someone who is prepared to rest in the kind of the realness, the simple truth of what it's like to be you and has a real tenderness and caring and cherishing for the deeper innermost being of your partner. I think that's fantastic advice
0: just in general for anyone in any form of relationship. And when we were planning for this episode, and we're kind of coming to the end here, you mentioned something that really intrigued me kind of offhandedly in our sort of exchange of emails back and forth about what we wanted to to cover today. And it was, it was a phrase, something like, things couples can do that will draw them into the deeper end of the pool. And I was just like, ooh, what does this mean? Uh, so that just seemed very interesting. And I would love to know what you meant by that.
1: Okay, great. Well, there are some simple exercises and... Mm, mm-hmm. Most of these, I think, I didn't come up with myself. They're just sort of out there. Then, you know, I'll just mention them. And to give a little bit of a warning, if somehow these exercises stir things up that are problematic, don't do them. And I'll say here for the record, the the very classic and important advice that if you're in a relationship in which there's any actuality or any threat of abuse, uh, particularly violent abuse, that has to be taken care of first before you try to do anything else. It's never your fault if your partner is abusive with you. It's their fault entirely. And just know that. Okay, that said, this draws first on the work of John and Julie Gottman, who are fantastic relationship experts. And one of the things they point out is that often people in couples don't know that much about each other. So it's kind of fun to just sort of, in a low key kind of way, interview each other. And you could do it back and forth, like five minutes each or 10 minutes each. Or you could just say, today, we're going to talk about you. Tomorrow, we'll talk about me for... And again, it helps to, I think, often time-bound it. You can go past the time bounds if both people want to. But otherwise, you know, we're just going to do this for five or three or 10 minutes. And it's not a big deal. So the question is, Tell me about some things that you haven't told me about that were really neat for you, that were important for you in your life, Mm. that were fun, like experience you had in camp or what was it like for you to uh, summer vacation? Is there a holiday that you liked a lot? Was there something that you did that was just a real kind of important experience for you, maybe in the Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or something? Just that, just finding out about interesting things in your partner's past that were positive, simple, good, positive, wholesome, no drama kinds of things. So that's one inquiry that can actually be really sweet. A second, a little more challenging sometimes, is to do a thing where you hold your partner's hand and you look into each other's eyes steadily for a breath, maybe for three or four breaths in a row, maybe for half a minute in a row, maybe up to a minute in a row, and then just kind of talk about it. What came up for mm. you when you did that? Simple thing. A Variation on that is when you look at your partner, you know, just maybe a question, you know, what suffering can you see there? What weariness, what sadness, what stress, what unfulfilled longings can you see in your partner? What can they see in you? Talk about that. Flip the other way. What sweetness? What goodness? What commitment to the good? What tenacity in the service of what's good can you see in your partner? And can you talk about that as well? So that would mm-hmm. be that. And then I'll maybe leave you with one I stumbled into with a girlfriend of mine a long time ago. It was really quite profound. We just were, and we were in the major human potential scene at the time. So it wasn't completely bizarre to be doing this in the coffee shop. We just started asking each other recurring questions. And Mm -hmm. so A would ask B the same question again and again and again, and then you'd switch roles essentially. So the first question was, what do you want from me? Mm So I asked her, what do you want from me? And she would say something, often the first thing that came up and I would say, okay, got it. And wouldn't, I wouldn't agree or disagree in the moment usually, but just, I heard it. And when you ask the question again and again and again, and you're on the receiving end, after a while, you just kind of empty out, you've put it out on the table and you're left with this real feeling of being known and connected with your partner. And it also, sometimes things come up that you think, you table them, you go, hey, let's talk about that later, or I could probably do most of that. I'm not sure about all of it. You know, (laughs) I'm not sure about the whipped cream part, but anyway, something like that. (laughs) Then you get to it later and then you switch roles. So that's a recurring question. What do you want from me? Another related recurring question is, what do you need for me to trust me? Mm. That's quite powerful. What do you need for me to trust me, to open to me, to depend on me? and things like that. So those are some things that people can do. You could, I would say last, you might think about your undelivered communications. And sometimes it can help. This could get, you know, kind of bigger. So you want to be really, really careful about that. But you might start out with, what's one thing I appreciate you that I haven't said enough, mm. if at all? And go positive, especially when you're trying to renet things. The last thing I'll say about this that's practical is if you're trying to repair, if you're trying to re-knit something that's gotten torn and you're sincere about it, stay out of fights for a day, a week. I find that what's between a couple that walks in my door and divorce court is 10 good days in a row if they can just get 10 good days in a row, they don't have to be great days, just days without stupid fights, days without mistreating each other, days in which they reasonably deliver the goods, they keep their agreements with each other, they show up in, in you know, reasonable, normal kind of ways. Woof, that itself is really, really good. If you do make agreements around repair, keep those agreements. It's like two countries that have been at war with each other that now have a hard-won truce. It's really important not to violate the truce or to violate the peace treaty because then the betrayal yeah. really, really sinks deep. So yeah, stay out of stupid stuff. Just don't go there. It's like if the leg is broken and you put the cast on, you don't wanna keep re-injuring it. You know, you wanna give it time to mend
0: yeah, I think that's wonderful advice and a great list of questions. As a little plug, and this is not a sponsor of the show or anything. I got a card game. I think it's called the and the and then a and d. They run a lot of ads on social media and stuff. Oh. And so there's a part of me that was like a little, ah, I don't know about this, but I got the product and it is a wonderful product. It's just a series of cards like I think 120 cards, something like that. And they all just have questions on them. Great stuff. And the idea is that, you know, it's questions you can ask your partner that draw you into the deep end of the pool. A lot of the questions are like very real. I would say most of them are. And they're just like really good conversational topics. We also Mm -hmm. have here, um, Elizabeth and and I do at our house, at our condo together, we have these cards that are called table topics that we Mm -hmm. often bring out when we have friends over and we just like ask each other questions. And it's a great way to spend you know 45 minutes just getting to know people uh, a little bit better just kind of reinforce some of the the great things you were saying there it's a good place to leave today's conversation whenever we talk about relationships we tend to run long uh which makes total sense it is a deep and rich topic and i'm so happy to talk about it with you and uh you know i just think that it's it's really interesting right like how people's expertise changes in different ways over time and is seen publicly because I think that the perception of you in a lot of ways, Dad, is of like the neuroscience brain guy, you know, brain with Buddhism in some combination. But the truth of your practice for most of your life has been working with people inside of their relationships and inside of their interactions with one another and making them go as well as they can. So I always love leveraging that whenever we have these conversations. Yeah. So today we talked about improving our relationships. I began today's episode by asking Rick about the issues that tended to bring couples into his office most frequently, and he explored a number of common topics. Sometimes it's sexuality, sometimes it's trust issues, sometimes it's communication. While the underlying issues might vary a lot, there was often this kind of common structure that brought people into Rick's office. And I loved his framing of this, so I'm just going to repeat it here in the recap. Basically, one person has a problem with the other. They're fed up about something. And this creates a common structure where there's a sort of plaintiff, somebody bringing the case, and then there's a defendant, somebody who the case is being brought against. They entered Rick's office with this case, and then the journey is shaped by three things. The first thing, how responsive the defendant is to the complaint, essentially, of the plaintiff. How much effort are they willing to put in to addressing the complaint? Then the second part, how receptive is the plaintiff to the good efforts made by the defendant? Maybe these efforts are imperfect. Maybe they're halting. But if they're done with good intentions, is the plaintiff willing to accept those efforts or not? And then finally, critically, and I found this really interesting— How much is the plaintiff willing to respond to the grievances of the defendant that naturally emerge during the process? I love this framework. I think that you can see these patterns in almost every relationship. I know that I absolutely can see them in my own. And I thought that it was just such a great way to boil down so much of couples counseling. We then went from there to discussing a variety of different general skills and important values that increase the likelihood that you might end up in a loving, lasting, supportive romantic relationship. I began that by talking about the difference between liking and loving, and my personal view that often couples love each other a lot, but they don't really like each other that much— And this, of course, happens for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it happens at the front end, where we get involved in relationships for a lot of different reasons, some of them perfectly good, perfectly understandable reasons that have very little to do with how much we like another person. But if you're really trying to choose somebody for the long term, one of the first questions you should probably ask yourself is, how much do I like them? And I get that that sounds profoundly obvious when you say it that way. But again, there are so many reasons that people get into relationships that have very little to do with liking. And a little test that you can do yourself is how would you feel about spending 90 minutes, couple hours in a shared space with the other person doing nothing physical where you have to interact with each other? Maybe you're having an important conversation. Maybe you're making dinner together. Maybe you're just reading books next to each other. Do you like sitting in the same space with them? Do you like enjoying the same activities together where you have to be in conversation? And if you kind of look at that and you go, eh, I don't know, well, maybe they're just not a great candidate for a variety of different reasons. Then after we've entered the relationship, or maybe we're really committed to it for whatever reason... We can go out of our way to deliberately activate a feeling of liking the other person. Then we talked for a while about having an openness to change and transformation. You're not in a relationship with a person. You're in a relationship with a process. And that process is going to change over time. There is nothing that any of us can do about this. So we need to understand it deep in our heart that the person that we're entering the relationship with is not the same person who is going to be with us even six months later, let alone a year later, five years later, 20 years later, whatever we're getting ourselves into here. What often happens is that people attach themselves to the version of the person who existed at the beginning of the relationship. And that means that change becomes very, very threatening. And as the individuals in the system change, they put pressure on the system itself. The system must adapt to the new individuals that have appeared inside of it. And this forces us into accepting that change if we're going to have a long-term, healthy, reliable relationship. Of course, again, some changes are not acceptable. And maybe that's a sign for you that that relationship has run its particular course. But what we can do, kind of as Rick said, is get a sense for the deep core nature of the other person, their inner being. And we could ask ourselves, do we feel like our partner is invested in that inner being, is really allied with it, and is interested in it, wanting to connect and share with it as it grows and changes over time? And do we feel that way about our partner? We talked very briefly about the importance of expressing needs clearly. We also talked about making very vulnerable communications and the importance of opening inside of ourselves and accepting our vulnerable parts that want to make that big communication to the other person. But most of the time, once that communication is made, things get a lot more straightforward. They don't always get easier, but they often get clarified in one way or another. I hope you enjoyed this episode focused on relationships. I love having these conversations with my dad. He is such an expert in this territory. And uh, just like the territory of relationships as a whole is so touching and so important to our happiness, fulfillment, well-being in this life. So if you enjoyed the episode as well, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of great bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening.